Hello everybody and welcome back to High School Not So Much a Musical. Today we are joined with Simon Osamo, who is a former British police detective who is now turned into an entrepreneur. He loves talking about crime, risk management, and practical tips on how people can stay safe. So Simon, if you could give the listeners a quick introduction by yourself, I feel like that would be a great way to kick off this podcast. Well, firstly, thank you for inviting me on your podcast. I'm really excited to share part of my journey, hoping that it will inspire and help other people. I'm a a Brit living in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I've lived in America for around 10 years. And when I was in England, I served 14 years in the British police as a detective investigating organized crime and was honored and privileged enough to work on the liquid bomb terrorism plot against the US in 2006 with the British security services. Uh, And then when I emigrated here to the US, uh, my background or my journey led me into physical security. Some of you may be aware of the Mall of America in Minnesota. It's the largest entertainment and retail complex in North America, around 7 million square feet. Uh, There I oversaw the internationally recognized behavior detection program, uh, where I was head of counterterrorism. And then after there, I moved into financial risk management, working for three of the country's largest financial institutions. And as you mentioned, um, I'm an author. I've written a couple of books on safety and security, uh, and I consult. I love to help organizations and people stay stay safe. So there's a little bit about my, my background. There's a lot in there for you guys to unpack. So, Mr. Osamo, you've obviously had like a very interesting background. That's a mix of joining the police force, um, becoming an investigator in like some major malls and now in like the business field. So if you could give like a small overview or a timeline of what led you to one another, because you've what led you from doing what inspired you to join the police force and then investigator and then what eventually got you to the business field because it's not something that we typically see those type of professions all in one lifetime yeah that's a good question and i think if i reflect back on my journey everything really leads from the sort of servant heart that i I love to serve and help others um particularly I, i love to help other people find the best about themselves because quite often in life we don't often see the good attributes that we have we need other people to point those out to us because we're always looking forward and very rarely do we look back and reflect and i think when i joined the police in england i actually joined the police at 19 which is very young in the uk and here in america and by the time i was 23 i believe it was i was a detective so again a very young um, detective but I think what led me into the police was just a desire to um, help other people um, use communication um, skills. Uh, And just, I think it was a fun and exciting career. I mean, who doesn't like watching sort of crime programs on TV? And I think as a young boy, age 14, I was fascinated um, by that. Uh, And that's what sort of led me into into the police. And then when I joined the police... Um, Part of my personal journey is that as a young boy growing up, my parents actually separated before I was born. Um, So I've never met my father, and that's uh, been a big part of my life to try and overcome that adversity. Um, And as a result of my parents separated before I was born, uh, my mum didn't have too much money, so I was sort of raised in a very low-income family. And I think when I joined the police, I could really relate to a lot of the people that I was incarcerating 
um, or arresting. A lot of them were from single parent families. Uh, a lot of them had uh, were sort of raised in sort of poor or low income families. Um, a lot of them had an absent parent. Um, and I could relate to a lot of these things and it allowed me to build rapport and build empathy and really treat the person at face value with no pre preconceived notions as to why were they were why were they where they were as a result of their behavior you know, so i used to learn used to love listening to the backstory uh, and treat everyone with dignity and respect and i think that's one of the reasons why i had a lot of success but everyone that i um, spoke to uh, you know, I treated them with respect and dignity, not judging them on their personal journey because I didn't know what had really led up to that that personal journey. And I think uh, when I moved here to America, uh, I was definitely, uh, you know, I moved to America on the 17th of October, 2011. And I think it was by the 2nd or 3rd of December, having been in the country for sort of less than eight weeks, if you like, I was then head of counterterrorism at one of the largest pieces of infrastructure in, in the Midwest. And I think I just carried forward a lot of those values, a lot of those servant leader values to help other people grow and um, develop the people around me and treat everyone with, with respect. And I think um, that really sort of afforded me opportunities that perhaps others wouldn't have. I mean, I moved into financial risk management because there was an FBI agent I used to do some work with. Uh, he got taken into, or he got headhunted, if you like, to a large finance institution. And he rang me and said, I've got an opportunity. I've got a role that I think would be really good for you, Simon. Um, and, that, and at that point, that was a, a role investigating employees that might have been um, committing anti-money laundering offences. Um, and, you know, that, that opportunity really came because of um, who I am, my, my background and how I'm able to communicate with people. So I think there's been, to sort of answer your question, there's a, a servant heart in everything that I've done, which then led me when I was up more in America, I was actually at Disney and someone called me and said, um, can you come and talk to this church about safety and security? And again, with a servant heart, you know, I sort of went um, trained them, and that then led me to consult with a lot of non-profit organisations. So, um, yeah, there's there's a lot in there, but I think the servant heart it is has been a, a running theme of all the different occupations that I've really, really gone into. Yeah, and I think a lot of people kind of understate that in terms of they go into things, you know, for the money or they go into things because they you know, genuinely enjoy it, which I'm sure you also did, but that a lot of people actually go into fields as well because they want to help other people, for example, yeah. uh, firefighters, police, like medical people, EMS, etc. Um, and th that's like a really humble thing to do because you're kind of putting your life aside to help other people, which is, and make their lives better, which is really, really cool. Yeah, um, and, and that's and that's really true. Tr tr so there's a point yeah. I want to put on in there for you to for you guys to know is that so I joined the police at 19, and there's another interesting twist here. But um, I joined the police, and I've been in the police around two weeks, and I walked to my local gym, and there was a financial planner there that was sort of talking to people as they're entering the, in, entering the gym, uh, and I got talking to him. And he's now one of my best friends, a, a guy called Ken, and he said, you know, what do you do for work? I said, well, I just joined the police. 
and he really helped shape my my um, career because what I started to do with this financial planner was buy and sell real estate at the same time I joined the police. So by the time I was mid-20s, I actually had five or six, so I was a police officer, but I also actually had five or six houses, which on paper were worth over a million pounds, which at the time was most probably 1.2, 1.3 million dollars. So my, my two occupations, if you like, didn't really align. But what I really learned was that when I got there, quite close to the top of that proverbial mountain for financial security, I didn't feel any different. Um, you know, the, the, the money didn't make me feel any different. What made me feel different was serving and helping other people. So that, that is that's definitely, and you need to be a bit old. I mean, I'm 43 now, so you need to be a bit old to say that, but it is that desire. You, you have to find what your passion and purpose is in life. You will never find that in material things um, or, or assets. You, you will only find it in finding your fulfillment in doing what you really enjoy doing. Yeah, like, you know, I completely agree with what you said a little bit earlier. You were talking about how, you know, the people that like you're around, they notice your best attributes and they honestly like know what's good for you. Um, like, for example, like in my case, my parents, they always knew that I was really good with my hands. So they told me, oh, I should start playing guitar. And now I love it. I've been playing it for like the last five years. So like, I, I just like, want to say, I completely agree with like what you were saying back then or, or you were saying then. Um, yeah. But then you mentioned how, how you wanted to become a police officer because you thought that you could relate to the people that you were incarcerating or arresting, like coming from like a single parent family, um, low income families. So I wanted to know, like, could you talk a little bit about what that life was like as a police officer or maybe what were some of your most memorable, like, memorable memorable things that happen because i feel like we only see what happens with police officers on like tv and like on the news but like we don't really know what happens on like a day-to-day -day basis yeah and no, that's a great question and you know here, here's one thing that i would say about being in the police is that particularly here in the us right now the police are under fire um and don't have the respect that they deserve but there's men and women across the country that are put in themselves in very vulnerable and dangerous situations for the good of society and I think we we underestimate how much these people are giving up and it is it's a career that will claim your life you know you you are never off duty as a police officer you can never turn a blind eye to you know a shoplifting a husband and wife having an argument a, a domestic or just you know you are you are living that occupation 24 7 and it can consume you and and relationships most often there's anti-social hours that, that comes with it um you know so your your friends might ask you to do something and then you can't go to you know you, you can't go and do go to a soccer game or go to a shopping mall with them or go to a bar whatever it is because you're working the following morning or something going on so you know, there's a sacrifice because both those phone calls become less and less the more you the more you say no. So people do give a lot of themselves um, away, um, and and also you know you don't fully get thanked for the task that you do. Some often it can be a thankless task, uh, and people don't uh, acknowledge what you've done, or you can't actually tell people what you've done. There's so many things I used to work in organised crime. There's so many things that I've done to the good of society. We can't even really talk about those things because we're not allowed to. So it can sometimes be 
a thankless role. But there's a, a story that comes to mind to answer your question. I, I worked on a burglary team, a house burglary team. And there were two gentlemen that were going round and breaking into old people's houses. What in England we call distraction burglaries. So as an example, you would have one of the assailants would knock the front door and they would talk to the elderly person, sort of 80, 90 years old. They would distract them while the second burglar would go around the back of the house, either break in or access via a um, access via a, an open door or window, and then they would steal from this elderly person. So in England, we call that a distraction burglary. And there were two gentlemen that must have done around 60 or 70 of those uh, against these elderly people. And I threw sort of investigations of forensics uh, and surveillance sort of tracked down the two people responsible. And, and there was one woman uh, I'll never forget. So you're going back around sort of 20 years uh, and this woman's husband died um, during the uh, Second World War, I believe it was. And then the only picture she had of her husband because of the generation that it was, you know, going back to sort of the 40s, 30s and 40s, was inside uh, her handbag, her purse. And so not only did these people steal from her, they also stole the only person that she had of her husband, uh, you know, who had given his life to, to his country. And for me, that was so demoralizing to, to see that and know that, you know, the lack of humanity of these people to, to put an elderly person um, through that. Uh, and then we found these two people, we arrested them, they got incarcerated. And around three or four months after the investigation had concluded, uh, I got a phone call from someone to say a purse had been um, found within um, someone's front yard. It was underneath like a bush and they'd been doing some garden work and then found it. Um, and they found this lady's purse inside um, uh, this handbag. And I went to go and collect it and it was all sort of wet and sort of horrible and sort of, you know, it'd been sort of, um, you know, the rain had come down and destroyed a lot of stuff in there. But in there was still the picture of, of her husband. Um, and I went back to this woman's house. And like I said, I can't remember her age. She's maybe 80, 85. Uh, and I went around with my partner and I just sort of told her what had happened. That we'd found her purse and found the picture. And this elderly woman just sort of burst into tears um, and was so emotional in its return. Um, and for me, that really symbolized what that career was about and how much good you could really do in society. So, um, you know, there's, there's those really cool moments that you get to in a tragedy also gives some sort of peace. Um, and, and so there's a lot of a lot of cool things that you can do in the police um, and particularly if you like working with people and you're a good communicator, um, you, you have the opportunity to make to make a real, real difference. Not only did I incarcerate the people responsible, but I was also able to give that woman some peace in, in getting her, her picture back of her husband that she thought was gone and never to be seen, seen again. Yeah, that's a really inspiring story, especially like with what you were talking about, how that was the only photo she had of her husband because obviously like photography was probably pretty expensive at the time or also you know it's it, it just wasn't as common to take pictures at that time yeah. it, was, it was pretty hard to so uh, the fact that you were able to kind of rescue that one picture that she had 
is really, really, really cool. Um, and that kind of leads us to the next question about kind of the general day in the life of an investigator, right? Because you, you, you talked about this one really cool story, but what a lot of people don't realize is that even for things like police work and investigator work, there's still, you know, a, a lot of boring stuff. You're not just on your feet all day catching criminals. There's a, a lot of death work. There's a lot of paperwork, etc. Um, whereas in movies, we kind of see this portrayal of like investigators with a top hat and a trench coat on their feet all day, kind of going to every single crime spot and picking up clues, etc. Uh, but what was like the day in the life for an investigator like for you? Yeah, and that's a good question. And first up, I was just making some notes as you're talking. I think the skills that I would say are apl applicable are you've got to be very analytical, you've got to be very methodical, and you've got to be very detailed orientated. So I'm talking about as a detective now. And you're right, but most often, if I'm very honest, I would have a stack of cases. I think at any one time, I could have 30 to 40 cases that I'm that I'm looking on. And the, the harsh thing is that you have to prioritize those cases. Each case has a victim on the end of it. And you've got to prioritize which cases you feel you have the best opportunity to detect the perpetrator and bring them to, to justice. So there is um, an analytical aspect to your mind, and but you have to really be able to prioritize and know at the end of that priority there's someone's life, there's someone's name, but they've been a victim of crime on the end of it, and they could be going to the bottom of, of the pile. And that can come with a great depth of responsibility. So uh, a lot of day-to-day -day processes as a detective is reading, reviewing. So, you know, if there's a robbery, a burglary, um, a homicide, whatever it might be, you're reading um, accounts from witnesses as to what they saw and heard. You're trying to sort of piece all this story story together. So what they don't often show you in the movies is that there can be hours of conversation to understand the person's mindset, to read witness accounts and try and find the commonalities between their stories or lack of consistencies between their stories. The analytical on the sort of the fraud money laundering side, looking at the details, the the financial money movement, you know, do do things make sense? Why did the funds move through this one account into this one entity? So there's there's a lot of research that really goes into being a detective. You you are right, the knocking on someone's front door and doing a search warrant or the surveillance you see in your car, that's most probably five, ten percent of the work. Most of the true work is done when you're actually at the police station being very analytical, very methodical. You're, you're reading, you're communicating with witnesses, you're, you're trying to piece this um, stuff together. The, the, what you see on the TV is a sort of five or ten percent of a day-to-day of a -day life. Most often, uh, you know, I could work 10, 11, 12 hours a day. I would say seven or eight of those were sat at a desk doing analytics, um, sort of being... Um, analytical looking at data and maybe only 30 minutes an hour might have been sort of face to face with someone does that make sense yeah yeah um but like one of the questions i had was like you know you said you were presented with almost like 30 to 40 cases at a time so were you trying to like take 
sorry, were you trying to take as like the most time that you could for each case, like be really detail oriented to make sure that you got to like the correct like solution almost, or were you trying to like go through them really fast to get as much done as quickly as possible? No, and, and, and so here is a very challenging, uh, here's a very challenging place that you, that the occupation can put you into. And um, this, this came, this came out recently, I had a conversation with my brother back in England. Uh, he works in sort of mental health. And one of the things that you quickly learn, and again, this is why sometimes you have to be careful what stories you share with people outside of your world, because you can deal with the pressure, you can deal with the debt responsibility that comes with it, because you can't save everyone. So the reason why you can see so much human brokenness and it doesn't affect you as much is that you know you can't save everyone. You've got to focus on the ones that you can save. Um, because otherwise, the hurt and the pain that you see in the world will drive you crazy. So being very transparent and honest, what you had to do were prioritise those cases that you believe that you can solve. So there were some cases where the victim didn't get the same level of depth of investigation um, because you've got to focus on those ones that you can save. To, to remove those bad people from from harm. So yeah, the, of the 30 cases that I'd have, there were always some cases that consistently get being pushed to the bottom because it was financial crime, white collar crime, and I've got a serious assault against someone. I've got a sexual crime against someone. You know, I've got a homicide or I've got some uh, a drug deal or something like that. Those ones go towards the top other crimes get pushed towards towards the bottom and, and, and tragically that's the way it has to be because you can only focus on the ones that you can you can detect you just don't have the time in today's world to, to give them all, all that time so again prioritization is a key skill and and with a depth of responsibility to understand you're changing people's lives by not looking at that thank you so much for listening to this episode of high school not so much a musical with simon osamo Stay tuned for part two where we will talk about some of his greatest investigations and why and how he made the switch from being an investigator to an entrepreneur. Thank you so much and we'll see you next time. That's our show for today. Now roll the credits. High School Not So Much a Musical is hosted by Ayush Agarwal, Nitin Jaladanki, and Rishi Sinha. Narration by Samhit Padala. Music from Louis Luang Relaxation Cafe, Tune Pocket, and Infraction. If you like the show, please recommend it to your friends and family. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.